Welcome to the Health Report on VoicePrint. With news and features about wellness, nutrition, and medicine, I'm Angela Kreihel, and with me is Donna Kikonge. Protecting your job while coping with a chronic illness is the title of this article by Leslie Alderman from the June 20th edition of the New York Times. It started with an odd sensation in her right hand and a feeling of exhaustion so profound she could hardly get through an hour of work, let alone a full day. After numerous tests and countless doctor's visits, Natasha Frechette, then 27, learned she had multiple sclerosis, a disease that attacks the central nervous system and can cause numbness, blindness, and eventual paralysis. In addition to grappling with the diagnosis, Ms. Frechette was concerned about keeping her job as a data manager for a small research organization in Brooklyn Park, Minnesota. I didn't want to have to depend on someone to take care of me, she said, but I know that I could wake up tomorrow and not be able to walk. Workers with chronic illnesses face chronic uncertainty, forced to worry not only about their health, but about their jobs as well. The protections afforded chronically ill workers in the United States are thin and somewhat vague. To protect their health and their jobs, workers must navigate employers' policies, which may include short- and long-term disability plans, as well as a patchwork of federal laws and regulations. A recent study by the Center for Economics and Policy Research, a Washington research organization, found that among 22 rich nations, the United States was the only one that did not guarantee workers paid time off for illness. Most other countries provide their workers not only with paid sick days, but also time off for cancer treatments, the study found. German citizens, for example, are allowed five, six days and 44 days for cancer treatment if needed, in addition to vacation days. Most employers in the United States allow employees to take days off for minor ailments like the flu or outpatient operations without docking their pay. And 41% offer employees days off, nine on average for illness or other reasons, in addition to vacation days, according to a 2007 survey by Mercer, a benefits consulting business based in New York. But when an employee has a serious or chronic illness like diabetes, major depression, or lupus, the rules about time off become murky. Two laws offer workers some relief. The Family and Medical Leave Act allows employees to take up to 12 weeks off each year for medical or family emergencies, but without pay. And the Americans with Disabilities Act requires employers to make reasonable adjustments for disabled workers, often in the form of additional time off. Ms. Frechette explained her condition to her supervisor and said she would need time off for physical and occupational therapy. Her boss readily agreed, and Ms. Frechette, who plans to marry this fall, continues to work full-time. I'm careful, she said. I don't want my disease to be seen as a cop-out. If you are dealing with a chronic illness, here are some strategies to help you maintain your job. Inform your employer. If you have a condition that could interfere with your performance, tell your boss. People are often afraid of being discriminated against, said Rosalind Joffe, a career coach who counsels people with chronic illnesses.
I had one client who didn't disclose his illness to anyone. His odd behavior led his boss to conclude he was a drug abuser. Be honest. Explain what your condition is and how it might affect your work. Don't be ashamed, Ms. Frechette said. A supervisor who understands what is wrong is less likely to make false assumptions about what you can and cannot do. Be clear about your value and what you can deliver, Ms. Joffe said. If you're a valued employee, your boss will work with you. If you feel you are being unfairly treated, speak with your supervisor. If that doesn't work, go to the Human Resources Department. Ask for adjustments. If your illness meets the definition of a disability, your employer is required to make reasonable accommodations to your job or work environment, according to the Americans with Disabilities Act. What is a disability? It's a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities, said Chris Kruzinski, director of the division that deals with the Disability Act at the Federal Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Although your illness may be episodic or controlled by medications, it is still a disability, according to a recent amendment to the law. Your employer does not have to provide an accommodation if it would impose significant difficulty or expense. Asking for a car and driver to take you to and from work would probably not be reasonable, Mr. Krasinski said, but taking time off for chemotherapy treatment certainly would. According to the Society for Human Resource Managers, the top five accommodations for the Disability Act provided by employers in 2005, the last year for which data are available, were parking or transportation modifications, making existing facilities accessible, offering new equipment to workers, restructuring jobs, and modifying the work environment. If you are not sure what type of accommodations you are entitled to or how to ask for them, contact the Job Accommodation Network 1-800-526-7234, a service provided by the Federal Department of Labor. In general, the network recommends that you put your request to your employer in writing. If you work in a small informal setting, that may not be necessary. Know the time off policies. You can learn about the on-the-books rules by going to your company's intranet or speaking with its human resources department. If you need to take a few weeks or months off for an operation, for example, or chemotherapy, research your company's short and long-term disability plans. Disability policies typically allow you to take a specific time off at reduced pay. According to Mercer, the consulting firm, 78% of employers offer short-term plans and 80% offer long-term disability plans. You can also tap into your 12 weeks of family and medical leave at any time. You may take the time intermittently or all at once. You will not be paid, but your job will be secure. Explore alternatives. If the hours are too long or the work is too taxing to handle while you are ill, find out whether you could work part-time or could even take a different job in your company. If neither is feasible, 
explore new career possibilities. One of Ms. Joffe's clients was a high-powered lawyer who had a serious heart condition. To reduce stress, he decided to give up litigation and become a teacher. If you are worried about your finances or health insurance, be sure to check with the advocacy organization focused on your disease. The American Cancer Society, for instance, has a call center, 1-800-227-2345, that helps people who don't have health insurance or are on the verge of losing it. If your illness finally prohibits you from working altogether, you may apply for Social Security Disability Insurance. The process is lengthy, and you must be able to prove that you cannot work at any job. The amount you are paid is based on your lifetime earnings. You can find the number on the annual statement you receive from the Social Security Administration. Generally, payments are modest. The average in 2008 was $1,063 a month. But once you have received disability payments for two years, you automatically qualify for Medicare coverage. The title of that article was Protecting Your Job While Coping with a Chronic Illness by Leslie Alderman from the June 20th edition of the New York Times. You're listening to the Health Report on VoicePrint, brought to you by Walmart. Play Hard But Know When to Stop is the title of this article by Judy Gerstel from the June 19th edition of the Toronto Star. There's a fine line between being ultra-fit and overdoing it, and sometimes... That fine line is even visible, a slight hairline crack in a bone commonly known as a stress fracture. Stress fractures in runners occur for sure, says Dr. Tommy Basher, a committed weekend athlete, runner, and family physician in Scarborough. Stress fractures are difficult to detect on x-rays. You need a bone scan, says Basher. The cracks commonly occur in the weight-bearing bones of the lower leg, ankle, or foot, They can happen because bones are weakened by osteoporosis, because improper technique puts more stress on a particular bone or simply from overuse. When muscles become too fatigued to absorb more impact, the stress gets transferred to the bones, and the bone fractures slightly. Healing the break, to the great dismay of amateur athletes addicted to their sport, usually requires a break from the activity for some six weeks. No athlete ever wants to stop, even for a day, or to lose the level of performance that's been built up over weeks and months. But by neglecting problems, by pushing too much and not allowing the body to heal, even more can be lost. Says Basher, I I tell people, you can never get more fit in one day, but you can wipe out an entire season in five seconds. Basher's own recent injuries have involved mostly muscles and soft tissues, hamstrings, gluteus, tendons, but he did suffer a chip fracture in his wrist last year while playing catcher for the Oakville Golden A's in a Canadian National Old-Timers baseball tournament. I slid into second base and my wrist jammed into the ground, he recalls. I didn't notice it at the time, but later it started hurting and then I couldn't move my wrist. Being a doctor, he knew exactly what he should do, That would include immobilizing the wrist and taking some anti-inflammatory medication and perhaps pain medication. Being a competitive athlete, he did not. I asked my brother, who is also a physician and was there with me, to shove some anesthetic into my wrist. The next day, he played the championship final with his wrist swollen by 50%. His team won, and they're now the two-time defending champions in the 44-and-over age group, 
I would never recommend doing what I did, says the 58-year-old physician. But I think any competitive amateur athlete, whatever the age, whether 20, 40, or 100, who has a chance to win a championship and to be the best in their age group, would want to do the same. Whether he's going to his team's tournaments or accompanying another to international competitions, Basher always brings along anesthetics. Some guy jams a toe, he says. Somebody's always doing something that needs some freezing. But except for these events, in situations where you can buy time by alleviating pain without doing any further damage, he says, if you're injured, get treatment right away. If things are not great, quit. Getting to a doctor or therapist specializing in sports early on in the injury is critical. Basher mostly follows his own advice. He relies on Markham chiropractor and elite runner John DeFinney to help him through musculoskeletal problems. Bones, says DeFinney, on their own won't give you a lot of pain unless it's a fracture or unless you bang or twist them. The majority of sports injuries that we see are soft tissue, cartilage, tendons, muscles, ligaments. Shin splints, for example, sound like the shin bone in the leg has been injured and may feel that way, but that's generally not the case. Shin splint just refers to pain in the shins, says DeFinney, and it's usually an instance where the attachment of the tendon to the bone is inflamed. That's much more common than when the bone itself is inflamed. The best way to protect bones from sports injuries, says DeFinney, is to develop strength and coordination. You need to practice the activity you're doing so your muscles become strong and well-coordinated to prevent injuries, he says. John Fisher, a 50-year-old insurance agent, has had his share of sports injuries. If you're going to do competitive mountain biking, he says, you do come off your bike quite a bit. The Unionville resident says he's more reactionary than preventative. I keep going, but when I know something's slightly out of kilter, I go address it early in the process. That allows me to compete at a high level without having to back off. Fisher is also a marathoner and runs 1,000 miles a year. He's number one in Ontario for mountain biking for men between 50 and 55. I have the leader's jersey, so I'm happy. And he's happy to mountain bike with his five children, ages 16 to 24, who are also competitive skiers. We all use Dr. DeFinney quite a bit, he says, to jump on it really quickly if something is slightly wrong. The idea, says DeFinney, co-founder of the College of Canadian Chiropractic Sports Sciences, is to prevent problems, to fix things before they get worse, and, above all, to keep moving in appropriate ways. You can't be overly cautious and totally sedentary, he says. Somebody who's active reduces the risk of a lot of critical illnesses, heart attacks, strokes, diabetes, osteoporosis, and even certain cancers. The ideal, he says, is to enjoy activity and sports and to do it intelligently without overloading it or risking injury. But, he says, on the one hand, if you don't do anything, you are at more risk of getting these critical illnesses. On the other hand, if you do too much, you may have shin splints, aches, and pains. I ask people, what would you rather have, a little bit of shin splint or a little bit of stroke? The title of that article was Play Hard But Know When to Stop, by Judy Gerstel from the June 19th edition of the Toronto Star. Daycare for All Ages is the title of this article by Anne C. Roark from the June 17th edition of the New York Times. 
When the new school year begins a few months from now, Judy Hamilton Cantu, a senior director of a combined child-adult daycare center in suburban Los Angeles, will brave herself for a round of complaints from children who have discovered that senior citizens don't attend kindergarten. Not that Ms. Hamilton Cantu and the staff at One Generation Daycare haven't tried to prepare the center's 90 children for this eventuality. It's a hard concept to grasp for preschoolers who grow up thinking it's perfectly normal to cavort daily with people who have wrinkly skin, don't hear much, remember less, and shuffle about on metal contraptions that look like portable jungle gyms. For the center's 160 elderly adults, time spent in the company of children can be a powerful antidote to depression and disability. When families and caregivers drop off seniors at the center, staff members greet them, assess their moods and physical states, and then help them select a combination of intergenerational or adult-only activities for the day. Not everyone may be in the mood to whoop it up at a seated dance class, yet cradling a fussy baby, looking at a picture book with a lonesome toddler, or sharing a hobby with an inquisitive preschooler can often make even the most disoriented or disgruntled elder feel appreciated and useful again. When intergenerational daycare appeared on the scene in the early 1990s, some experts predicted it would be the answer for working Americans, 44% of whom have both dependent children and aging parents. Not only did intergenerational daycare offer convenience for families, it held out a promise to reduce ageism among young generations and dispel what Vera Roos, a professor of psychology at Northwest University in South Africa, described as an assumption that aging is nothing but a kind of extended terminal illness. It is not a panacea, but researchers who have studied some of the country's 300-plus intergenerational facilities over the past decade say the best of them provide some of the best care available for frail seniors. Elderly adults participating in structured activities with children are more focused and in better moods than when children are not involved, scientists have found. Moreover, adults continue to be in better spirits after the children leave, suggesting the interactions may have lasting effects. Even adults with mild to moderate cognitive deficits do better when involved in activities with children. Many older adults resist daycare, even though it can delay or prevent a move to a nursing home and is less costly than professional home health care. A facility with children can seem especially humiliating. Some families get their loved ones through the door by urging them to volunteer to help with the children. The families tell them you have to go. The children need you, Ms. Hamilton Cantu said. Of course, not every old person likes children, and even those who do don't like to be with them all the time. That's why experts in the field believe intergenerational activities should be optional for elderly adults. It's also important that activities focus on adults' interests, not just children's. A nursery song sing-along isn't likely to have much appeal for someone older. But planting seeds or helping a child look for bugs in an elevated, no-stooping-required garden might.
One of the dangers in any kind of elder care program is that caregivers may infantilize the elderly, forgetting that even with childlike needs, they are still adults, according to Sonia Soleri, a specialist in aging and intergenerational issues at the University of Utah. Baby talk, nicknames, scolding, timeouts, and silly decor may be appropriate for children, but directed at elderly adults, Ms. Soleri argues, are a form of abuse. At one generation, the staff takes pains to avoid such missteps. There are no dis-dinosaur posters hanging on the walls of the adult's private living room, and there is no public discussion of adult diapers or other subjects that might embarrass seniors. Elderly adults in age-integrated daycare programs don't actually take care of children. That's the staff's job. But they do have an enormous impact on children's lives, researchers have found. Compared to their peers in traditional preschools, children in intergenerational daycare programs are more patient, express more empathy, exhibit more self-control, and have better manners. At one generation, there are no etiquette courses per se, but every time children and adults come together for an activity, and that can happen as many as eight times a day, they greet each other with hi neighbor and shake hands. Children have been known to spot elderly strangers in malls and restaurants and call out to them, hello neighbor, sometimes they even walk over and shake their hands. A listing of intergenerational daycare programs is available from Generations Unlimited and Intergenerational Advocacy Group. The title of that article was Daycare for All Ages by Anne C. Rowark from the June 17th edition of the New York Times. This is the Health Report on VoicePrint. Coming up, our daily dose of discovery and innovation, science and technology is next. This article, titled Healing Powers of Locomotion, is by Natalie Stetcherson from the June 20th edition of the National Post. Healing Powers of Locomotion. Ease into an exercise routine, but then get ready to challenge it. Canada's massive population of baby boomers might be finding more silver in their hair and starting to think about retirement, but they are not ready to slow down. In fact, many boomers, Canadians born from 1947 to 1966, are turning to fitness and rigorous exercise for the first time. It's never too late to start, personal trainer Edna Levitt, 69, says as she rushes to meet her next client, ever. The list of benefits of active living is well documented. It's good for your heart and mental health, and exercising with friends is a great way to socialize. But experts say even the most energized boomers should take care as they embark on a fitness regime. The over-50 group is losing flexibility and strength, says Vancouver physiotherapist Deb Trellor. Trellor regularly treats baby boomers at her clinic who have overdone it physically. She says most of them are newly retired. They have a bit more time now and are doing too much. Trellor recommends baby boomers start exercising slowly to avoid injury. The big message, she says, is to move, get outside and walk. If you spent most of your life working behind a desk, then your body isn't prepared to jump into rigorous activity right away. The key is to maintain mobility, Trelore says. If you've been sitting in a chair for the past 30 years, you're more prone to injury. A visit to a physiotherapist before starting an exercise program could help avoid aches and pains down the road, Trelore says. A physiotherapist can pinpoint weaknesses 
and suggest strengthening exercises to prepare the body for activity. Trelora says baby boomers should pace themselves and be aware of their limitations. Get outside, she advises. Move, then build from there. Fitness coordinator Haley Whedon says more and more baby boomers are signing up for badminton and tennis classes at the West End Senior Centre in Edmonton. In fact, so many boomers are frequenting the centre that Whedon is starting to tailor new, more vigorous programs just to meet their needs. The 50 to 65 age group tends to be very aware of their fitness needs, Whedon says. She works one-on-one with new members to determine their physical ability level before they start a fitness program, Other members of her team focus on nutrition and motivation. I steer them in the direction they need to be going, Whedon says. Levitt can't say enough about the benefits of exercise for an older population. She was 50 years old the first time she ever went to the gym. She loved working out so much, she became a certified personal trainer when she was 65. Today, Levitt is the founder of 50 Plus Fitness, a Toronto-area service for older adults, and she never felt healthier. Weight training is a low-impact way to get into shape. Sculpted arms and good posture can go a long way in keeping an older population looking youthful, Levitt says. Nothing ages someone like stooped shoulders. And whatever you do, don't give up. Fitness is for life, Levitt says. If you stop it, you're just going to regret it. The best fuels for a baby boomer body. There are plenty of small but significant changes that can be made to a dietary regimen that help ease the aging process. In combination with exercise, following these tips could leave you feeling younger, more energetic, and less likely to feel ill. Exercise can help build bone density, but the body needs calcium and vitamin D to maintain it. Dairy products such as milk, cheese, and yogurt are great sources of calcium, but if you're not eating 1,500 milligrams of calcium each day, you might want to consider a supplement plus a vitamin D pill to help you absorb it. Check with your doctor before you start taking vitamins or supplements. The health benefits of omega-3 fatty acids, notably alpha-linolenic acid, icosapentaenoic acid, and docosahexaenoic acid are well known. Omega-3s help prevent blood clotting, lower blood pressure, reduce the risk of stroke, and lower triglycerides, a fat linked to heart disease, They are also associated with improved brain function, memory, mood, and performance, and bone density, and reduced stiffness and joint pain associated with arthritis. The best natural sources include fish, especially salmon, trout, char, sardines, herring, and mackerel, walnuts, flax, flaxseed oil, olive oil, and soybean oil. They are also available in omega-3 fortified foods and supplements. As you age, your thirst drives lower. It's very important for baby boomers to drink plenty of water. Hydrate before, during, and after exercise. If you work out for less than 60 minutes at a time, water is all you need to hydrate. But if you work out for longer, sports drinks aren't a bad idea. When you sweat, you lose water and salts. The electrolytes in sports drinks can help you hydrate faster. Your muscles need protein to recover after a workout. Consuming a carbohydrate and protein combo after working out will help to repair muscles and to refuel you. By making a smoothie in the blender out of fresh fruit, milk, yogurt, and wheat germ. Or just drink some chocolate milk. Studies show it has the perfect ratio of carbs to protein that your body needs after exercise. The best complement to a 
new workout regimen is a healthy diet. This article, entitled Healing Powers of Locomotion, is by Natalie Stetchison from the June 20th edition of the National Post. You've been listening to the Health Report on VoicePrint. Your readers have been Angela Cryhull and Donna Kakonge. Your producer was Tony King. Thank you for listening to VoicePrint.